sermon is drawn from the psalm that we began our worship with, Psalm 87. Turning to David's son, Solomon, in Proverbs 27 and verse 8, he writes this, Like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. Some translations use the word home, and they are not incorrect. Solomon is picturing where a man lives. He's picturing where he dwells. The, the literal idiom is his place, and that has a certain power to it. God has designed us, just like the birds, to have a home, a place. It's where we belong. It's where we live. Uh, it's exceedingly important to us. In fact, it's a matter of life or death. A bird who is driven from its nest uh, is in life-threatening danger, and the bird needs the nest. If he doesn't have the nest, uh, he is vulnerable. In Genesis chapter 26, we read about uh, what is effectively... Jacob being fired, he is being driven from where he wants to have a home. In chapter 26, verse 15 to 22, we read this. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. It's Isaac, not Jacob. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tents in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. And Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there, but The herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Isaac is looking for a home. He needs the things that are provided by, quote, his place. In the desert, it's water. You have to have a source of water to survive. Isaac is trying to make a place. And the Philistines are striking at him by striking at his nest, at his home. Go away from us. We, we want you out of here. Have you ever considered the term being fired? Have you ever thought about where it comes from? It does not come from the desert where they take away your water. It comes from more temperate lands where if they want you to leave, they set fire to your house. If you're fired at work, the, the language goes back to when people didn't want you to be there And so they torched your place, and you didn't have a home, so you had to wonder to find your own place. 
That's effectively what the Philistines are doing to Isaac. It's water, not fire. But they are firing him and driving him away and turning him into a bird without a place. And it is utterly necessary for him to have a home. He, he has to have his place. And ultimately, he receives his place. And the importance of it comes out in the names. You know, he names the places quarreling in peace because a man needs his home. They seem to be of eternal value to us, although the scriptures assure us that they are not. In Psalm 49, uh, the psalmist is talking about how worldly people think, and in uh, verses 11 to 12 and 14, he says this about wicked people. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. Worldly people... uh, make an idol of their place, and they assume that they will have a certain eternity connected to their place, and the scripture assures us that the place of a man forgets them once they've died, but they sure are important to us. Uh, Without a place, uh, we are vulnerable. Is our home important to God? Well, in Psalm 87, the answer turns out to be yes, although qualified. The psalm begins as such. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. If we are covenantally united to God... We are of his people. We are Jacob. We are descended from his promises. He calls our homes homes of Jacob. That is weighted with incredible uh, emphasis. Our homes are part of God's holy nation. We are his people, and our households are places that he loves. In saying that the Lord loves Zion more than all the rest of the dwellings of Jacob, he is specifically saying that the Lord does love the dwellings of Jacob. Our place, which is so important to us as creatures, uh, God is concerned about it too. He is concerned about it because we are Jacob. We make up his people and our homes make us up. It's where we relate husband to wife. It's where we relate uh, father to child, mother to child. It is where the most significant aspects of our lives take place. And the psalm assures us that, yes, the Lord is very, very much interested in what happens in the homes of Jacob. They're his homes, and 
he watches everything that happens there. For the Christian, the home of Jacob is a sacred place. God has laid his covenant upon it. God is very much interested in what happens in our homes. But I said it is qualified. It is surprising to the modern ear to hear that this psalm doesn't immediately jump into the sacredness of the home and how important it is. Rather, the psalmist puts it in a comparison and says God is totally interested in what's happening in Jacob's houses, but God loves his own dwelling, his own home, far more than all the rest of the dwellings of Jacob. He loves them, but what God truly, truly loves is his own house, where he dwells among men. In this psalm, what is the house of God? What is put forward as God's home, where he lives? Well, in this psalm, it is Zion by name. It is the mountain that Jerusalem is built around. It is the mountain that God has chosen to be the place where he would put his temple. It is Mount Moriah. It is the city of David. It is where he made a promise, I will establish the kingly line of my covenant forever. The branch our righteousness will rule here. Uh, It is the city that is a type and shadow of his real house, which is the assembly of God's people together. Even in the time of David, even in the time of the psalmist, even before Jesus Christ walked among us in the flesh, Zion and her temple, Zion and her city, was never the true house of God. God promised the people when they were brought out of Egypt, I will dwell among you. And in the the midweek Bible study going through Exodus, not last week but the week before, we really kind of hit a pinnacle, well, three weeks ago, we hit a pinnacle where uh, the Lord promised, I'm going to tabernacle among the people. We were looking at the tabernacle. Um... But the real house of God, where God dwells with his people, was never the tabernacle. It was never the physical temple. It was never the physical city. Those things were given by God as what we call types and shadows. They spoke of a greater reality, which is where God's real dwelling is. Listen to the words of the book of Hebrews, for instance. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 18. You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. That that may be touched and that burned with fire. It's a reference to the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai, but the city that Jerusalem is the mountain that Jerusalem is built around, you can touch that. 
but you have not come to a mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and to the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was the commandment, quote, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, the place where Psalm 87 says God's house is. You have come to Mount Zion, but you have not come to a mountain that may be touched. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So the writer to Hebrews tells us that there is a Mount Zion for us. It is God's home. It is where God dwells among us, but it's not a city you can touch. It is not a physical thing. It's the church of the firstborn ones. And the firstborn here is plural. It's not referring to Jesus. It's referring to we who are born in Jesus. It's the church of the firstborn ones. The city of Zion, the temple in her, always was a type and shadow focusing on how God related to his people in his people. And if you don't believe that, you come to the end of the the scriptures, you come to nearly the end of the book of Revelation, the last book of the scriptures, and there you read this in chapter 20, verse 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Am I in the right place? I'm sorry, 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. What is the bride of Christ, biblically speaking? If you know your Bibles, it is the people of God. It is those who are chosen in Christ. It is the assembly of God. Here in chapter 21 of Revelation, we see the city coming down, but it's the bride of Christ, and God dwells among men. This has been the focus of everything God has been doing. In the creation, men estranged themselves from God. They were put out of the garden. Ultimately, by the end of chapter 4, God doesn't show up and talk to them anymore. They are so estranged that there is such a gulf between man and God that you have to have organized religion created because God is so estranged. But God has been wanting to dwell among men in his house 
which is the assembly of God's people. And God loves our houses, and generally in a modern sermon, uh, we would focus on that. But in Scripture, God loves His assembly among us because it is His house. He loves His own house more than all the dwellings of Jacob. His interest is in His church. His interest is in His home where He dwells among men. And more than just dwelling among us, there is a family aspect that is taking place concerning Zion, concerning God's home. If you will notice in uh, this passage, there is a rebirth occurring. As evangelicals, we are familiar with the concept of being born again. Three times in the New Testament, that language is used. You must be born again. Three times. It's not that prominent, but it is there, and we evangelicals talk about that with great importance, and we should. You must be born again. If you will see heaven, you must be born again. There's a conversion taking place. It is not just... I change my life. It is not just that I change my philosophy. It is a change takes place in me so that I am literally reborn. I am a new person supernaturally. Something has happened to me that uh, changes me totally. You must be born again. No question about it. If you look at this psalm, you must be born in Zion. The language of birth is here, and it's covenantal. It is all sorts of people are going to be born into Zion. It's a very strange list of people. You are going to have Egypt born in Zion. You are going to have Babylon born in Zion. You're going to have Tyre and Philistia and Ethiopia All of these are going to be born in Zion. I can think of no greater picture of people being born again because this list is a list of people who in Scripture are diametrically opposed to Zion in most of the places that we find them listed. Egypt made slaves of God's people. They are a great enemy to God in Scripture. God opposes Pharaoh in Exodus in one of the most classic power encounters of all history. But here in Psalm 87, God will speak of Egypt being born in Zion. Babylon is the hand of God to punish his people, and in many, many places in Scripture, Uh, There's an emphasis that Babylon is idolatrous and it worships its own strength. Babylon is very much a devil figure in many ways. But here in Psalm 87, Babylon is born in Zion. Tyre is a, uh, a, a city of the Canaanites. During David's reign, Tyre is friendly with David. But throughout most of biblical history, 
Tyre is an idolatrous city that is at odds with God's people, but God will speak of Tyre being born in Zion. Or how about Philistia? All the way through 2 Samuel, we have watched David fight with the Philistines. They are clearly the classic enemy of God's people, but here in Psalm 87, God will boast that Philistia knows me, or Ethiopia, or we could use the term Cush. It is Upper Egypt, and at one point in biblical history, the Cushites will invade the land, and they will raise havoc upon God's people. Again, another tool of the hand of God in judgment. You would not think of them as being born in Zion. You would think of them as God's enemies. But here they are on the list, just with all the other very, very classic enemies of God. You could not put together a more comprehensive list of bad guys. But the psalm is celebrating that God's family will be born in Zion, and it consists of all these people. Egyptians and Babylonians and Philistines. What is going on here? It is covenantal conversion. God is changing human beings. He is bringing the dead to life. They are being born again, just as the New Testament tells us must take place. And they are being born in a specific place. They are being born in Zion. All the way through uh, history, the great leaders of God's people have emphasized, quote, there is no salvation outside of the church. End quote. If you are outside of the church, you probably look on that statement with some suspicion. You think that the leadership of the church is just really wanting to emphasize the church because they are the leadership of the church. Uh, you can be religious without being part of the church. You can stand apart and you can have a relationship with the Lord on your own. Why would it be said that there is no salvation outside the church? Well, the reason is because the church is where God lives. God dwells among men in the person of Jesus Christ, without doubt. Where do we find the presence of Jesus Christ? Well, he is David's greater son. He is the branch our righteousness who is promised to be king forever. Where does the king of Israel reside? If you want to knock on his palace door, where is that door? Well, the king of Israel resides in Zion. It is his royal abode. It is where he dwells. He is among his people in Zion why is there no salvation outside of the church? It's because that's where the Lord Christ is. Why would you want to dwell outside of Zion's walls? You want God's prophetic light, right? You want him to 
declare to you the truth and what is right and what is wrong. Well, Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed prophet. Where does God send his prophets and where would the prophet be found? He would be found in Zion. You want Christ to atone for you, right? You want the blood of Christ to cover you in God's sight, that he will consider you innocent and holy. Where do the priests do their work? Where would the great high priest do his work? He would do his work in the temple. The temple is in Zion. That's where it's located. Prophet, priest, and king. The great ministries of Jesus Christ where are they happening? They are happening in Zion. And here the psalmist rejoices that there is a rebirth and all these kinds of people are now sons of Zion, born again. Born again to be of the people of God, born to be in Zion. They are no longer what they were. They were Philistine, they were Cushite, they were of Tyre, but now they are recorded as sons of Zion, and that is their home, because they are in a new family, and their family father, their king, dwells in Zion. If you are not willing to go to your father's house, if you wish to stay as far as possible from your mother, you are estranged from your father and mother. If you are not estranged, you're welcome in their door. If you are not estranged, their home is your home, right? Zion is where God dwells among men. If you are not born into Zion, where are you born into if you belong to the Lord? God has chosen a dwelling place. He has chosen where he will make himself known, and it's Zion. And we were Babylon. We were Egypt. We were Philistine. But we have been born again. As good evangelicals, we will shout it from the housetops. Salvation is a matter of conversion. It is a matter of transformation. It is a matter of, of dying to the world and coming alive to God. It has a location. The location is Zion, because that's where God is. God is shown in this psalm recording his family, writing it in a book. And he says this one and that one, they were born in Zion. They may have been born physically in Philistia. But I will not hold that against them. They are now born in Zion. They were Babylonian. They worshipped their own strength. They made mockery of whatever is called God. But now they are born in Zion. They are a child of God and therefore a child of Zion. And God records them with joy because they now have a new home. The home that God has his most interest in, the home where God dwells among men. Now, if God so loves Zion, you would expect that he would make 
very special promises to her. And you would not be wrong. The psalmist records one of those promises in verse 5b. And the Most High Himself shall establish her. If you are Jewish and you approach the Psalter without understanding that the city of Zion is a type and a shadow of God's real city, if if you approach the Psalter only seeing God talking about sticks and stones and bricks, you're going to have resentment well up in you at this verse because that's not happened considering the sticks and the stones and the bricks. The Lord will establish her, the psalm promises. God will make sure she remains in strength. God will have his dwelling. The physical city of Zion has laid in ruins. It has been depopulated of people. The physical temple has been burned to the ground twice. If God made the promise only about Zion the city, then God's a liar because he has, in his own timing, allowed her to be wiped out. But God has made a promise concerning Zion, his home, which he loves more than any other dwellings of Jacob, that home is not that city sitting in the Middle East. It is the church of God that is gathered this very Lord's Day in this place and in other places. It is God's people gathered together to be the temple of God. Throughout human history, that has never been wiped out, even though there have been many, many, many who have tried. There have been bloody purges to destroy Zion. There have been tyrants who have screamed, let us burn her to the ground, let us kill everyone who is part of the temple of God, let us drive it from the earth. It has never been depopulated. It has never come into non-existence. And it won't because it is the city of a very specific kind of king. As Reformed Christians, we own a confession called the Belgic Confession. And in the 27th chapter of that confession, we read this concerning the nature of Zion. We believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation of true Christian believers, all expecting their salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by his blood, sanctified and sealed by the Holy Ghost, this church has been from the beginning of the world, and it will be to the end thereof, which is evident from this, that Christ is an eternal king, which, without subjects, cannot be. And this holy church is preserved, or supported by God, against the rage of the whole world though she sometimes, for a while, appears very small, and in the eyes of men to be reduced to nothing, as during the perilous reign of Ahab, the Lord reserved unto him 7,000 men who had not bowed the knees to Baal. 
Furthermore, this holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or to certain persons, but is spread and dispersed over the whole world, and yet is joined and united with heart and will by the power of faith in one and the same spirit. That is the Zion that God has made this promise to. It is where the eternal king sits in an eternal city. It is the capital of the kingdom of God. It will never be laid waste by Babylonians. It will never be taken off into exile by Assyrians. God will preserve her because Jesus Christ is eternally king from the moment time begins to the moment time ends, God will preserve Zion, for he has an eternal king among us. The end of the psalm is another promise from God, and it is a surprising one in some ways. The psalm ends, both the singers and the players on instruments say, All my springs are in you. This is after uh, the last Selah in the psalm, where you're supposed to pause and really consider what was said. What was said before this was an emphasis on conversion. Um, You know, when he registers the people, this one was born there. You pause, you really think about the way God can convert people who are, are totally alien to God's way of thinking. And then you have this last verse which talks about singers and players on instruments. So you've got entertainers. And the entertainers are talking, and they are talking to Zion. They're talking to the city of God, and they say, all my springs are in you. What in the world does this have to do with the rest of the psalm? Well, very much so, actually. I have thus far introduced this psalm as a psalm talking about personal conversion, and it very much is. I mean, Philistia is made up of Philistines. Uh, Individual people make up nations. And if you go to Psalm 9, the psalmist says, you know, Lord, make the nations know that they are mere men. You, You cannot convert a nation without converting individual people one at a time. But having said that... The psalm really only in one of its verses focuses on the individual. When it focuses on those who are converted, it uses the name of people groups. Egypt, Babylon, Tyre. It's talking about conversion of the world. Not just uh, a handful here and a handful there, but an image of whole nations being converted so that they are born in Zion. What are nations? How do you define them? Well, they are cultural institutions of people groups that share in common certain cultures and uh, determining factors, not the least of which are their entertainers. If you were to ask the world, what is America? I am almost positive that most people in the world would start pointing you to our entertainers. They would point to Hollywood, and they would point to uh, our popular music, and that sort of thing. Because that's what a nation is known for. It is known for its culture. And the psalm is picturing 
conversion happening worldwide. It's picturing God recording in his ledger great conversion so that even nations can be said to be converted. And if that's happening, the entertainers are going to give glory to God. Currently, our entertainers don't do that. If you consider Hollywood, if you consider our popular music, if you consider our entertainment industry, they are Babylon, they are Egypt, they are Philistia. They are as much an enemy of God as you can possibly imagine. They are on the forefront of mocking God and hating God. But the psalm is picturing a time where God will rejoice over the world being transformed and even the entertainment industry now is bowing the knees to the king of Zion. They are written as citizens of Zion. And when they consider where their muse comes from, they think, I'm born in Zion. I'm going to draw my, my uh, muse from the fact that I belong to Zion's king. Everything I do, the music I sing, the, the roles I play, they're going to give glory to God because I'm born in Zion. We are very, very far from that. But the psalm pictures a day where that will be the case. Where God will joyfully record that his greatest enemies are being converted. And the last outpost of those enemies, the popular cultures of them, are now beginning to give glory to God. What a day that will be. It hadn't happened yet. When the psalmist began singing this song, in the world he was in, it wasn't really happening. It's a prophecy of what is to come. It is a prophecy of the age in which we are living. It is a prophecy of the age of the spirit and the age of evangelism. This psalm is picturing the glory of God being known in the face of Christ, covering the world as the waters cover the sea. This only can come to pass after you come to the end of Matthew's Gospel and he says, all authority has been given in heaven and on earth to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Not just individuals although nations are made up of individuals, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is the age in which Jesus said, it's not for you to know times and authorities when Israel will be reestablished, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. That's what this psalm is talking about. It's talking about the end of our current time period. This morning in Bible study, we had the term postmillennial used. Postmillennialism pictures that 
when the Bible talks about God recording the transformation of the world, Philistia, Tyre, Babylon, Egypt, he's not kidding. That the, the power of God in Jesus Christ is going to extend to the world. The gospel is going to be successful, generally speaking. There is going to be a silver age where God will make himself known gloriously. That's the only way this psalm makes any sense. This psalm is about the victory of the kingdom of God. It is a a psalm of the victory of Christ. The eternal king is glorified in Babylon and in Egypt and in Philistia, where even now that's not the case, but the gospel is permeating into the deepest enemies of Christ, where even in North Korea, you have a growing number of the elect of God being born again. In darkest China, you have a church burgeoning at the seams, even as they try to fan, put the flame out, they're fanning it. The gospel is going forth across the world, and no enemy of the gospel can stand. Jesus Christ will be glorified on earth, and this psalm promises that. It does, however, promise that in a very specific condition, and one which I had really not noticed. I preached this psalm before. It is a favorite psalm of mine. It's a source of inspiration. But I never noticed the first verse until, perchance, I was reading Matthew Henry this week. And Matthew Henry points out something very specific about the home of God that I'd read many times, but it really had not hit me. The, the first verse says, His foundation is in the holy mountains. Well, I've read that, and I thought, yeah, well, you know, he put his temple on Zion, that's, that's where he's at, so let's go on. But Matthew Henry points out, when God uses the term holy, he does so for a purpose. Holiness is the foundation of the house of God. It is not built upon compromise, it is not built upon pragmatism, it is not built upon human philosophy, It is not built upon human innovation. It is built upon holiness. And what is holiness? It is what God has set apart to his own use in his own way. God has chosen to dwell among his people. He dwells in his church. Jesus is in our midst. The king is in our midst. We walk with him. But the foundation of the holy city is holiness. If we build Zion on any other foundation, we're building her on a different mountain. And God doesn't dwell on a different mountain. God dwells on holiness. That is the foundation he has laid. That is the only foundation he will accept. We look forward, if we are post-millennial, to a victory of the gospel. We look forward to Christ being known to all types and conditions of men, by every nation. But what will God build that on? 
It will not be built upon human ingenuity. It will certainly not be built upon compromise. It will not be built upon a church that says, let us go as far into the world as we have to go to make a connection with the world because they are too far away from God's holiness. Let us compromise God's righteousness that we might reach people. That is the drumbeat of the modern church. That is the music you cannot even shout over in the modern church. That is assumed. Let us build Zion on pragmatism and compromise. But God's household is built on the holy mountains. If you want Zion's walls to stand, if you want the temple to stand, if you want to be where the king is, that's where holiness is. God will not bless another city. Zion is given the promise that she will always stand. Her king is eternal, but she is built on the holy mountains. Let us never forget that.